cool. Uh, Steven, just, just be aware that if you're planning on typing, it does come through your mic pretty strongly. Uh, yeah, yeah, my keyboard is obnoxious like that. I won't, I won't type unless well, I. Well, no, yeah, yeah. I just to, yeah. Man, you can't stop the written word. How dare you stop the uh, the the, lo the logos? Mm, indeed. I, well, I'm thinking more just like deaf poetry, but uh, that too. That too. So, guys, like, how does it feel that? the logos, the written word, the sacred thing by which we communicate, describe all things that are around us, also did, you know, like weird Twilight fan fiction that turned into Fifty Shades of Grey. Like what what twisted creatures are we that we could do, you know, scripture and Fifty Shades of Grey well, with, the, with the same hands and the same tongue? Good I mean, we didn't do scripture. Oh, touche. That's a good point. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. that's, the, that's the problem with writing, I guess. And it just goes to show that peasants should never have learned how to read or write. Yeah, great. Great. Cool. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Stan. And uh, here we are, yet another pod from the quarantine, looking at the master and his emissary, chapter one. Stephen, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I, I would like to say that the, uh, you know, the pod from the quarantine was nicely punctuated by some coughing in the background. Just really kind of add some, uh, add some atmosphere to the whole thing. And uh, thankfully, uh, in good health over here, and uh, hopefully, hoping it will stay that way. What about All you, right. Sam? I'm doing pretty well. Um, Brevin, I do have a question. How did we decide on the order that we say our names in the intro? We never talked about that. So, but I, it's been the exact same since I've been on this thing. So, well, so there's your answer right there. So, this podcast started off with myself, Thomas, and Stephen, uh -huh. and then uh, Thomas un un unfortunately passed on to more productive things with his life. Memory and eternal. Memory eternal. Um, memento mori, and all that. And then, so then it was just Steven and I for a while. And then you came on as a guest once or twice. So then you were the third voice, you know, like you were the unknown quantity. But now, you know, obviously you're a household name known across America. So clearly. Oh, see, I thought, I thought that I was, you still considered me a special guest. On I mean, it could, we could have it such that like you've just been the special guest this entire time. Like guest starring. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, insert last name here. I did label the podcast titles like that for a while, but it's 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 just more typing, honestly. So yeah. it's just implied okay. at this point. It's an implicit thing that you are always a special guest, Sam. Great. Okay. Just making sure. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so, uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now? I'm drinking a nice, cold um, Evan Williams Kentucky bourbon. Hell Ooh. yeah, man. Well nice. played, yeah. sir. Yeah. It's a good What a... What inspired you to choose Evan Williams? Um, well, I um, so I'm 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 staying with my parents actually during this quarantine just because I'm kind of in this weird middle place between college and and bigger things. And I was I was speaking with my father, and he was like, "Oh, are you about to record the podcast? Um, there's a <laughs> bottle of Evan Williams on the counter if you want some for when they ask you what you're drinking." So excellent. That, Ooh, that's it. Feels yeah. good right there. Yeah. Uh, tell your dad that Evan Williams is all that I drink. Um, really? Yeah. Wait, was Brevin's that, an Evan it, Williams man. Mm -hmm. Evan Williams bourbon. It, it's it's the it's the best cheap stuff that I know of. Well, it's it, um, internationally ranked. It's it's always been ranked. The no, best yeah, value whiskey. Wait, yep. really? I was yep. not yeah. aware of that. 
and you can get a very large bottle for not very much at the Wegmans just down the road. So yeah, praise be. You can get a, you can get a huge bottle for like twenty five dollars. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's twenty one here for a one point seven five. Huh. Well, I'm gonna have to leave the podcast. I'm gonna go get some Evan Williams. <laughs> you should, but man, this would be a great commercial. They should be paying us for this crap. <laughs> Our first sponsor, by Evan Williams. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Stephen, what are you drinking right now? Well, I'm not quite as classy as Sam. Uh, I am drinking a can of Arizona green with uh, ginseng and honey, which makes it sound like you know it's it's been expertly brewed and crafted and whatnot. But uh, no, it's just a can of Arizona tea. I downed those by the dozen my uh, senior year of high school. I can visualize I remember that. the can in my hand. Yep, it was always oh, in great. Hand. Yep. Wait, really? Yep. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. yeah, but I mean they're great. They taste good, and they're ostensibly not bad. No, they're pretty bad for you. That's like hot colors a, a can. Yeah, no, it, it's bad for me. How many grams of sugar do they have? I shudder to think. Let's see, okay. ten milligrams of sodium. Uh, no saturated fat, so that's kind of twenty. Holy frick, twenty-four grams of sugar. Of course. Of yeah, course. that's not good for me. That's not. That's not good. Oh boy. Uh, well, so so as for myself, uh, I am having a nice little. Uh, martini, uh, sand, uh, olives, unfortunately, because I started growing, like, you know, the kombucha thing, what do you call the things that grow inside kombucha? Scoby. A scoby. Yeah. I was growing one of those in my olives and I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to happen. So, uh, I, I, I tossed those. So all of this martini, unfortunately. Incidentally, what's in a martini? Uh, it's, it's just gin and, uh, dry vermouth. Oh, it's so much alcohol. Yeah, It it is. So much. Indeed. Uh, Well, anyway, on that note, let's get to our reading for this week. Uh, We are on The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, Part 1, The Divided Brain, Chapter 1, Asymmetry and the Brain. We were going to have a nice, succinct summary from our own Stephen here, but he unfortunately dropped the ball, so now the summary is split out in between all three of us. You know... You know, Brevin, I'd just like to think that it wasn't me so much dropping the ball as it was me trying to enforce the asymmetry that goes on in our very existence. And so our viewers will have a very nice asymmetrical experience. So you're welcome. I'm actually noble here. All right. Well, I forget who has the, por- <laughs> the first portion, but whoever that is, go for it. Um, I have the first portion. So the, the chapter starts off um, where Miguel Chris asks, why are there two hemispheres in the brain? He kind of makes some observations about the basic structure of the brain, which is that it is divided. The brain has two large hemispheres that are connected by the cortical uh, callosium. We're probably going to butcher a lot of these pronunciations, so I'm really sorry to any of our um, neuroscientist listeners. Um, that's just how it's going to be for this book. Um, so the, the, the halves of the brain are connected by the cortical callosium, um, which is about 300 to 800 million fibers between those two halves. That sounds like a lot of fibers, but really only about 2% of the neurons in either hemisphere are actually connected together. The other 98% are operating entirely independently within its own um, autonomous system. Furthermore, the purpose of this uh, of the cortical callosium is actually to inhibit the functions of the other hemisphere. So the left hemisphere will use that to block the right hemisphere and vice versa. Um, the final point, or another point that he makes, is that we can actually live with this severed. That if our two hemispheres um, are not connected together really at all, people can go on um, living a normal life, uh, with a few exceptions that he says he's going to get to later. So basically that's his overall assessment of the basic structure of the brain. 
two sections that are connected together um, and are really inhibiting each other in order to function. He then makes the observation that this dual structure is actually what brings about the world, uh, our world. Everything that we experience and the world as we know it is brought about by the structure of the brain and by these two autonomous systems operating in tandem. He then attempts to address the slippery mind-brain pro problem, addressing, well, what does it really mean that we experience something? We, what does it mean that we experience something through our brain? And after going on for about a page about this and giving some a few, a few different options, he concludes that while we may not understand exactly where our consciousness or our mind comes from and whether it exactly extends from the brain, we know for a fact that everything that we know about the brain comes through our consciousness by the fact that our consciousness is actually the one that is observing the brain. Um, this uh, leads to his transition to saying that Descartes, the uh, Descartes was actually right in a certain respect. He was right in the fact that our consciousness is the primary thing by which we understand the world. He was wrong, however, in trying to in in breaking that out from the actual thing of the brain, the actual structure of the brain, and creating a dualistic structure of the mind and the brain. What he says, what, what McGillicuddy says is wrong about this, is that Descartes is trying to identify exactly what the whatness is about our mind. Um, and this is a very left-brain thing to do. Or, yeah, a very left-brain thing to do. Um, the response to Descartes is materialism, which says, well, no, our mind and our brain are exactly the same thing. Everything that we experience comes out of the brain. But this is falling into the same problem, that of trying to identify exactly what the thing that we are experiencing is. Um, after this phenomenological um, divergence, he goes back into looking at the structure of the brain. He looks at the frontal expansion seen in human and basically concludes that this is what defines our human condition. Our frontal lobes being larger, far larger than any other animal, allows us to step back from the world and assess it. Um, we need to be able to both feel and live a very embodied experience, what he calls surveying the terrain, but also be able to rise above it and look at the entire territory. Um, this balance is it uh, goes to his point of us having a necessary distance. Basically knowing ourselves separated from the world, but also not completely detaching from it. And it's defining that balance um, that we need two hemispheres to do. Finally, he says that those frontal lobes allow us to see the world from someone else's view, which allows us to become social animals, um, quoting Aristotle in that. This division is not unique to humans, however. Even though it gives rise to our unique human experience, many other animals have divided brains. And so that's why he continues to look at the structure more deeply, Stephen. Uh, so McGillicris then moves on to structural asymmetry and goes over a brief history of findings of the differences between the two hemispheres. Uh, in the 19th century, the faculty of speech was associated with the left frontal area, uh, given that those whose brains were damaged in an area via stroke would oftentimes suffer from speech impediments. Uh, further discoveries placed language comprehension distinct from speech further back in the left hemisphere. Uh, and in fact, the uh, planum temporal uh, on the left side is on average significantly larger. Uh, and this part of the brain, you guessed it, is associated with processing auditory information. Uh, but this asymmetry doesn't stop there. The left side of the brain has its larger part, but so does the right. Uh, the back left of the brain and the front right of the brain are both wider than their counterparts, leading to an appearance of the brain being twisted about the central axis which is now known as the, oh boy, uh, the Yakovlevian, Yakov, 
yeah, I'm not going to try to re repeat that torque. Uh, it should be noted that it isn't a deformity. This is the standard shape of a healthy brain. Uh, and he goes on to describe other uh, brain asymmetries, but I personally found that the, mo the most interesting. Uh, McGilchrist goes on to comment on how the brain grows physically via activity. And most of the time, this growth implies heightened performance, though not always. Uh, one common example is the phenomenon of London cabbies growing larger right posterior hippocampuses the area of the brain that stores complex three-dimensional maps in space. Uh, he then kind of having described all um, kind of the, the fact that it is happening, he moves on to describe how asymmetry uh, brings about competitive advantage or maybe the why of this. Uh, this quote is long, but it's worth quoting in full. Quote, there's a need to focus attention narrowly and with precision, as a bird, for example, needs to focus on a grain of corn that it must eat in order to pick it out from, say, the pieces of grit on which it lies. At the same time, there is a need for open attention, as wide as possible, to guard against a possible predator. This requires some doing. It's like a particularly bad case of trying to rub your tummy and pat your head at the same time. Only worse, because it's an impossibility. Not only are these two different ex exercises that need to be carried on simultaneously, they are two quite different kinds of exercise, requiring not just that the attention be divided, but that it should be two distinct types at once. End quote. A few examples follow, such as following, focusing on specific tasks, uh, such as uh, picking fruits, and long-term tasks, such as avoiding predators and finding mates. On the whole, he argues compellingly that having areas of the brain specialized is not only useful, uh, it is in fact the case, and we see it across the spectrum of living organs, or, sorry, organisms. Quote, the left hemisphere yields narrow, focused attention, mainly for the purpose of getting and feeding. The right hemisphere yields a broad, vigilant attention, the purpose of which appears to be awareness of signals from the surroundings, especially of other creatures, who are potential predators or potential mates, foes or friends, and it is involved in the bonding of social animals, end quote. And that's kind of, he, he leaves off there to go into a brief diatribe on attention, and that is where I'll pass it off to Brad. Yeah, so for the last section of chapter one, he goes into what's probably best described as some phenomenological explanations of how we perceive the world, and more importantly, what that means for the representation of the world that appears in each of our heads, inside our consciousness. And so he talks about the nature of attention. And the basic argument is just that the type of attention that we pay to the world changes what we perceive the world as, what the world is experienced as inside of our heads. And in that way, we change what the objects functionally are. We are partners in creation of what the objects are, at least in the way that we perceive them. And he gives a quote that's, again, long, but worth quoting. Quote, attention is not just another function alongside other cognitive functions. Its ontological status is of something prior to functions and even to things. The kind of attention we bring to bear on the world changes the nature of the world we attend to, the very nature of the world in which those functions would be carried out and in which those things would exist. Attention changes what kind of a thing comes into being for us. In that way, it changes the world. If you are my friend, the way in which I attend to you will be different from the way in which I would attend to you if you were my employer, my patient, the suspect in a crime I, I am investigating, my lover, my aunt, a body waiting to be dissected. In all these circumstances, except the last, you will also have quite a different experience, not just of me, but of yourself. You would feel changed if I changed the type of my attention, and yet nothing objectively has changed. So it is, not just with the human world, but with everything with which we come into contact. A mountain that is a landmark to a navigator, a source of wealth to a prospector, a many-textured form to a painter, or to another the dwelling place of the gods, is changed 
by the attention given to it. There is no real mountain which can be distinguished from these, no one way of thinking which reveals the true mountain, end quote. And so in that sense, the type of attention that we play is extremely fundamental to the construction of the world around us. And I'm going to go a little bit out of order from what the chapter actually says. But he then looks at, so how do we understand the brain? Because the way that we usually try to understand the brain and the way that it's been described, not unusefully, not unhelpfully, is in the scientific method, which purports to be an objective view, a view from nowhere, a view that you know pulls things out of their context and views them as they actually are, as they truly are. He says that this is a view that has implicit biases in it, an argument that's made all the time in, in a variety of contexts, but he makes it here specifically in regards to the function of attention or or the pre-function of attention. Because the scientific view is a view that privileges detachment. But as we just observed, that's not necessarily the only way to view things, and it's not necessarily truer or more real. So unfortunately, when we try to describe the brain, when people try to describe the functions of what's happening inside the brain, they revert to the scientific method because that's the tool that we most obviously have. And as I believe he goes on later in the book, is the default tool in how we understand many things in our culture and society at large. And we describe the brain in terms of the type of object that we can fully understand and articulate, which is that of a machine. Whether or not that is fully accurate or not, I, he says he's, he's bringing up a lot of questions that he will be endeavoring to answer in the future. So despite all of this, the structure of the brain is relevant. The asymmetry of the brain is relevant. And it seems that the asymmetry of the brain points towards two different ways of viewing the world that come before the actual functions of the brain itself, two different types of attention that the brain can pay. And the type of attention that one pays to the world also has implications for the perceiver. And he brings up an example uh, talking about mirror neurons, where if you watch someone doing something, the mirror neurons in, in your brain do a ghost version, or you know, I'm describing this poorly, but your mirror neurons do a ghost version of what is being enacted by another person. Your empathy circuits are imitating in, in a way what is being done by another person. The act of viewing the world in a particular way also changes who you are as the perceiver. So as he uh, moves forward into the second chapter in which he goes, primarily into the many different minute and specific scientific differences in between the right and the left brain, the very specific functions. He's also questing at what is the underlying, if there is one, what is the underlying type of attention that the right and the left brain seem to differ in? What is it that they seem to be separated on? What's the difference in between them? And he says, uh, quote, the difference between the right and the left he says, is, quote, at its simplest, a world where there is betweenness and one where there is not, end quote. And uh, with that sort of cliffhanger, we, uh, we're we on to chapter two. We're on to chap- chapter two, and I am excited to, to see what comes of this, because it seems that this chapter was him setting up a lot of just his basic premises. And from there, he can kind of say, okay, we've all agreed on this, or we've all established this. Let's move on to the interesting stuff. Uh, let's move on to how these two modes of attention actually interact, how they conflict, how they cooperate, and how they ultimately impact us and how we perceive the world. Yeah, I think that's the case as well. I mean, and, and, and he's kind of made it clear in the, in the introduction and chapter one, as he goes through it, he's um, 
he's constantly caveating himself and saying, no, it's not like pop psychology. This isn't the pop, you know, are you a left brain, right brain person? This is actually, you know, really important stuff about structure that you need to understand in order to get into my later argument. And so I think that he wanted to kind of break this off and really get his readers solid on what is the, what does the brain actually look like? Why does that structure matter? How does that operate? So that then when he brings up those concepts later, it will make sense and he can actually delve into why that's important. I, I am glad he adds those caveats. There is kind of this amusing, uh, we talked a while ago about the uh, ex post facto Trumpian hand wave, uh, where he'll say, you know, there's no such, like the, the left brain, right brain, pop psychology is a myth. It's not real. But hey, here's what the left brain does, and here's what the right brain does. And so I, but I, I say it only somewhat tongue, or I say that tongue in cheek, uh, given the fact that he is bringing this massive corpus of uh, of data of of different studies that have shown clearly there are distinct differences between the two sides of the brain. It's just if we are to think one, you know, you are going to be doing a left sided action or a right sided action or or a left-sided person or a right-sided person. Like, that's where it seems that people start getting into trouble. But he has already argued very convincingly that the data is overwhelmingly showing that there are two modes of being. There are two, um, uh, or, two or the two sides of the brain are both highly specialized in two very different things. And I am excited to kind of see where this leads. Yeah, I think the effect that he's having to struggle with, um, and I'm forgetting the name, you brought up the ex post facto Trumpian hand wave. Uh, but there's a there's one that we brought up even further back talking about the like the the potentiality of memes to have infinite pasts and infinite uh, futures. Oh wow, that's an old one. That's an older meme, sir. It checks out. Yeah, uh, it's the mimetic bottleneck in that he can condense down the key differences between the right and the left brain into a metaphor. However, when trying to transfer that metaphor to anyone else without the sort of the, the mass of scientific research and very specific differences amassed that then can be more or less, you know, sort of boiled down to a statement that doesn't have a contradiction with anything in the larger uh, backing field. When someone else hears that metaphor, they then build out another field that is completely different than the one that he, that he boiled down that metaphor from. Does that mm. make sense? Uh, like I, uh, okay. Um, hmm. I have a visual image in my head. Okay, so imagine an, an hourglass. Okay. And at the top of the uh, hourglass, there is all of the scientific facts about the right and the left brain and the true differences that can be proven and that are demonstrated and that also conglomerate into statements about the right and, and the left brain and their key differences. But then when he tries to communicate that to one person, you can't just say, here, read this, you know, 600 pages, which we're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. and 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 this is the key difference. So instead, it tries to condense it down to a point. That's the the narrowest point at the hourglass, which is the metaphor that uh, could be accurate. That that is that is accurate given all of the facts above. That it's not a contradiction of. But when anyone else views that metaphor from the other side, they don't see what all of the scientific facts are. So they construct a series of potential realities and assumptions that are not necessarily accurate. So his nice. caveating is to say that while you can condense it down to an, an accurate metaphor, the metaphor only is is accurate if you also understand the field of information that informs it. Right. The, meta the, the metaphor is accurate within its context, but once you divorce it from the context, it just becomes kind of a tool of pop psychology that is 
more dangerous than a lie, it is a uh, half-truth. Exactly. Which is why the only people who are deserving to rule the world are those who complete this book, which is why we need to do it. Yep, exactly. That's what we're really going for, actually. It's funny you mentioned, like, the, you know, if you really want to understand here, go read the six pages. I mean, like, yes, the Master and his Emissary is that long, but, like, looking at the endnotes and the sheer amount of study studies he has gone through and is referencing... I mean, it's more like 6,000 pages. Like this, this thing is massive if you take into account all the research that's been done and all of the, the work he's had to go through to distill all of this into something as quote unquote short as a 600 page book. I mean, good night, this guy, like the information on this is vast. Well, apparently that just killed it. I think that's just um, your meme analogy, I think is just an explanation of how knowledge works is that as you transfer information, you, um, you know, somebody could bring along infinite baggage to that piece of information doesn't have all the science behind it. And particularly on the subject of brain hemispheres, I think he's aware that it's been so horribly mutilated and butchered by pop psychology that he has no, he needs to tightly control what we bring to the table when we're addressing his work. So, I mean, I think it's more just an argument strategy, really, which is good. All right, so I can just go on for like 20 minutes trying to explain using visual images, and Sam is just like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's actually just like two sentences worth of information. (laughs) Whatever, that's fine. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying, if we go over time. No, yep, yep. Um, One other thing that I think uh, we we all would vaguely appreciate is just uh, one, I think at least more than one of us has read Michael Polanya and personal knowledge, which has a lot of consilience with this in terms of, you know, oh, yes. your perception and owning the knowledge that you are producing as an active agent in the world. Yeah. The difference between Polanya and McGillicrest is that with McGillicrest, you can read one paragraph, enjoy it, understand it, and read the next one. And Polanya, you, you don't get that luxury. <laughs> <laughs> I have been delighted by how, like, this, this is dense material, but he's able to break it down in such a way that it's actually for the, the subject matter that matter that he's tackling, it is shockingly readable. Um, it, it just moves along quite smoothly. That is kind of a welcome relief from some other, uh, you know, uh, philosophy uh, and theology books that I've read. And here's my second bone to throw. And that is particular, or it is interesting how this early on someone with obviously so much experience with hard science, hard, um, uh, neurology and psychology and, and all this stuff. The key thing that he draws our attention to, to frame much of the rest of a section that is going to be talking about hard science is still something as simple as the type of attention that we pay to things, which is something that David Foster Wallace talks hey. a lot about, and this puts him hey. in a different perspective um, that that just the the absolute centrality of no matter what facts he he brings to the table no matter what arguments he makes uh and no matter you know what we think of the world there is still at the core of himself and at the core of every single reader this thing which you can't control for anyone else which is just what kind of attention is anyone else paying at any given time which is just uh, i don't know kind of a mind-blown concept the the pure subjectivity of consciousness this idea that no matter how good our technology gets, no matter how insanely complicated our brain scans get, we may know the current brain state of Brevin, but we will never understand. We, we will never understand what it is to be Brevin, um, and, and that that kind of infinite gap of objective uh, state of being and subjective experience 
is something that it seems that Mel Gilchrist takes very seriously, um, which I, I deeply appreciate him him going about and saying like, no, like the, the way you approach things changes who you are and it changes what you are beholding. Uh, and it seems like he has a very solid grasp on this uh, that is just refreshing to hear a scientist have a strong grasp on it. So would you say that the gap in between like the ultimate subjectivity of experience and, you know, like outside perceivable things is an infinite gap or perhaps an infinite jazz? That was dumb. All right. Do we have any more thoughts Uh, on that? Uh, You brought up Nagel. Good for him. Oh, yes. What is it like to be a bat, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of Nagel's best-known things. But I, I like how Nagel is one of you know, the, the big critics of uh, scientism, of um, a kind of uh, hard naturalism or hard materialism. Um, but also, uh, just he, he's kind of one – he's someone that, that kind of pokes fun at people who think that like science is the objective worldview. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a short, short quote um, uh, concerning the kind of – quote unquote, objective view. Science, however, purports to be uncovering such a reality. It's apparent value, apparently value-free descriptions are assumed to deliver the truth about an object onto which our feelings and desires are later painted. Yet this highly objective stance, this view from nowhere, to use Nagel's phrase, is itself value-laden. It is just one particular way of looking at things, a way which privileges detachment, a lack of commitment of the viewer to the object viewed. For some, reason, for some purposes, this can be undeniably useful, but its use in such cases does not make it true real closer to the nature of things so i just i I really appreciated his very careful approach and his very uh clear disdain for scientism for this idea that like yeah science is going to give you give us a a purely objective reality of things yeah science is dumb i agree yeah science is a liar sometimes (laughs) next few months reading a book about science yeah let's do it okay next week well yeah i am excited for uh chapter two which will be summarized by our own dear steven next week yes Um, yes it will i will actually do that this time and let me just tell you he is in for a baller good time although i will say i have started reading it and there are some very fun scientific facts in there that are just like what it's amazing i I do have to ask are we doing like all 60 some pages yes we should split in half we should split it in half come on okay whatever you just want to make me suffer we will take this offline uh Anyway, what I was going to say is, is, given the fact that we just spent 45 minutes talking about 16 pages, um, yeah. that will not bode well for 60 pages. Yeah, I'm with Sam on this one. Sorry, bro. This is a democracy, after all. It's, it, it's a war, more like it. But mm-hmm. uh, speaking of wars, our article this week, provided by Sam, is Learning in Wartime by good old C.S. Lewis. Yeah, C.S. Lewis. Whoa. Go, Lewis. Go, Sam. Okay, I think we lost him. Well, Sam's dead. Yeah, Sam's dead. Sam, no, Sam, not Sam. He's oh, always he's reconnecting. Ah, good, good. Um, hmm. So, uh, talk about. you know, any good jokes? Uh, not a single one. You know, I I used to have joke books and like think that was a thing, but then I just realized that like sarcasm is the only form of adult humor. Hmm. There's like, something d- deeply depressing about that. Like, there's something very childish. And, well, okay, so, like, there's, it's worthy of some further analysis, but, like, like there's very much this, like, this weird childish assumption about, like, set-up punchline mm-hmm. in, like, a setting. Like, that's such an interesting social phenomenon that just presumes so much that's so naive, but also, like, nice if, like, things could be that way. I, I mean, don't know. Joke, a lot of jokes do take a, a particular structure. 
I mean, if you look, listen to a lot of comedians. Well, no, I mean, see, but comedians are different than I would say, like, because because that's a that is a controlled, structured environment in which jokes are performed. Uh, whereas a joke book is like, hey, while you're hanging out with your friends, take control of the conversation. You know, by and telling a joke that has a very specific. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And in most social situations. Jokes are going to come in probably, what, two forms? Sarcasm and uh, maybe observational humor? Like, I'm going to say telling an amusing intrusive too. Oh, oh, fair enough, fair enough. Um, but I'm thinking like telling an amusing anecdote that happened to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That may qualify as like observational humor a la professional comedians, but that's the only thing. I- but yeah, that would. I'm sure someone's written something smart on that, Stephen, but I'd, I'd be willing to read it if you could find it. <laughs> yeah, I... I'm trying to think of what field it would fall under, either psychology or sociology. I mean, you you absolutely know that some Ad- Atlantic writer has written about this. Oh, for sure. I know Christopher Hitchens did write a very amusing article on uh, humor that got him in a whole lot of hot water because he's Hitchens and he always gets in hot water. I think he just likes it there. Um, it's. I think the title of the article was Why Women Aren't Funny. And ah. uh, yeah, he got in a lot of hot, uh, hot water over that one. But uh can't imagine why. <laughs> Ironically enough, like as edgy as a title it was, he was very quick to acknowledge that there are many very funny uh, female comedians, but then kind of went into these different diatribes on like what the purpose of humor is, what the nature of humor is. It's, uh, I don't necessarily agree with this, his uh, title point, but uh, it actually is a really interesting take. Okay, can you hear this whole yeah. sentence? Yes, we heard that whole sentence. That's amazing. Okay, we'll see if this this holds. Let me close a couple more applications with hoping that will hold. It'll, it'll Let me close working. my Bitcoin miner. Gonna go ahead. Yeah, and that would do it. R Studio running a for loop. Gonna close okay. six different tabs of Chrome. Uh, you know what? I'll just... I've got I've got I think about sixty tabs of Chrome open right now. I'll just yeah, go same. ahead and shut down. Um, just Cause Four running in the background in a. <laughs> And not in a full screen window, in a windowed view. I've got to get, I've got to get a Tableau shut down, and then I should be good. Okay, we should be good now. I've closed Tableau, um, and I think a few people got off the Wi-Fi, and we're all good. So, yeah. Okay. Speaking of uh, war, uh, Sam has our article for this week: uh, "Learning in Wartime" by good old C.S. Lewis. Yeah, this is an article that I. Um, I greatly enjoy. It's actually a sermon that Lewis preached um, at the University Church in Oxford, and it's a great article. Um, I actually, or it's a great sermon. I really enjoy it. I'll probably end up going overtime on this, so Revan, you can cut some of that out later. But basically, this sermon was a preached right at the beginning of World War II in autumn of 1939. He starts off this sermon with the initial question of why should we pursue learning during a war? Um, and he's talking to his students who are just starting at Oxford and um, detecting a sense of kind of anxiety in in the city that it doesn't seem to make much sense to start on the project of learning when it's quite likely that you're going to be drafted into war and likely you're going to die very soon in that conflict. Um, he talks about that for a bit and then uses the analogy or the historical anecdote of um, Nero fiddling while Rome burned. And that's what it seems like for him when people, or as what people have claimed learning to be like right now. But he turns it around and says, really, the scandal is that Nero was fiddling while he was on the brink of hell. And the question is, how can we spend any time on art, mathematics, literature, biology, any kind of human pursuits, when the far more important question is where we're going after we die, and as a Christian, saving the world, 
or bringing about salvation, at least in the world. Um, he observes that war creates absolute no new situation. Um, it simply aggravates the old situation um, and reminds us of the permanent human condition that we are going to die and that we don't necessarily control those circumstances under which we will die. Um, he says that well, he makes the observation that in these situations, in situations of extreme crisis and peril, people continue to pursue knowledge. And he points out that if we had waited, waited until we were secure, until we knew that we weren't going to imminently die um, out of our control, um, until we discovered any kind of knowledge, we would have never discovered any knowledge. And therefore, it's within our nature to do these things, to think about beauty, to think about art, to think about science even when we're not secure. Now, he points out that just because it's in our nature, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily rational or that it's right. I mean, the rational point is, how can we think about anything except for either the salvation of souls or the war? And he's contrasting his current situation of being in the war with the overall situation that he thinks that every human should face, that being that we should be constantly thinking about salvation and bringing about our religious um, fulfillment in the world. Um, go, being entirely religious or entirely nationalistic seems quite rational. Relig but at the end of the day, religion doesn't entirely change our lives. Just like during the war, we can still talk about the same things that we talked about beforehand. He points out that when he became a Christian, he thought that his entire life was going to shift um, around, but it didn't necessarily. He had this new element to his life, and he was far happier, and he discovered a full new realm of meaning, but he still went about the same daily things. Um, he then points out that war is finite. It can't capture your entire soul. Um, and even if the war is just, which... In this situation, he thinks that Britain is just for going to war against Germany. Um, we should still engage in that war, but also we should still engage in, in edu education. We should still engage in pursuing knowledge. Uh, one quote from this section is that a man may have to die for our country, but no man must, in any exclusive sense, live for his country. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which of all things, most emphatically belongs to God himself. He then moves exact, um, into the conversation of religion. And he says that religion is entirely different, uh, for an entirely different reason than war, cannot occupy our whole life. Obviously, there's no compromise with God. Either God demands your life or um, you reject that. There's no compromise there. However, Christianity does not necessarily exclude ordinary human activities. And he goes through several examples of the apostles talking about going about daily life and visiting with, peop with people and having those human interactions. Um, he, the main contrast here is that we do all these natural activities for the glory of God. God is present, but does not, is not necessarily exclusive in that space. He doesn't displace our daily activities. He merely sanctifies them. So now, Lewis goes into the question of human cultural being frivolous, whether or not we should actually pursue our culture at all. First, he rejects the idea that cultural activities can be spirit are, are inherently spiritual. Um, he says that culture, even great culture like Beethoven or other amazing art, becomes spiritual only when it is offered to God. However, um, the function of bringing about God's glory or helping others do so is meaningful and can come through our culture. And he looks to Aquinas for that argument. It doesn't mean that we're always edified by those conclusions, but it does mean that the learned life is a valid option for this. And therefore, we should pursue it, though enjoying knowledge for its own benefit, enjoying knowledge in and of itself, is a detraction from that. Um, he, he talks a little bit more about the indirect value that we see from culture. Um, 
one of which is that the culture will always exist outside of the church. Whether or not the church and us Christians engage in the culture is irrelevant. The culture will continue to exist. And therefore, we should be educated and understand it and be able to withstand the intellectual attacks of it, not simply passively receive it. Um, good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Um, he also talks about, he kind of gives the historical cliche, but um, truism, that knowledge of the past can help us avoid those errors of the past. And so for that reason, it's important to gain knowledge. Education can be a duty from time to time. And if he's speaking to students, or speaking to an audience of students, it's very clear that he's telling them, this is your duty right now to pursue education. Um, if you're called into war, then that is your duty. But right now, pursue education. Um, he finally, he concludes with um, three tricks, as he frames it, that our mind plays so let's think of the situation as more abnormal than it really is, and gives his um, audience three exercises um, to use against what he calls the enemies of the scholar. First is, is that of excitement. Um, excitement basically distancing ourselves from our work and us becoming entirely, um, in, entire, or sorry, enti entirely engulfed in the war, thinking about the war constantly. He says that the war is no new enemy. It's simply raising the old one up. And we're, we're always gonna have distractions in our work. And so therefore we should be used to that, but also respond to it accordingly and continue to pursue knowledge. The second enemy is that of frustration feeling like we have no time to finish our work because of this impending crisis. He points out that this is always the situation and that we should really leave this future in God's hand. That if we're going to commit our virtue or our happiness to whatever happens in the future, then we're, we're never going to succeed, whether or not there's a war. We should make plans, long-term plans lightly and continue with day by day. And the final enemy is fear that right now we are confronted with a great deal of death and pain. This, he says, is no new situation. We're guaranteed to die, either by the machine gun now or the cancer in 40 years. Um, all the war does is it brings that death sooner to us, um, or at least what makes us look in the face of it. Um, but that doesn't seem too significant. It's, we, it will most likely be less painful than a drawn-out long death, and we're going to have at least a chance to prepare to die peacefully. At the end of the day, we shouldn't be afraid of either this death or the future death. Um, but we, it's, we only seem more afraid right now because we're faced with it, because we can't forget about the fact that we are going to die. So with all that, he concludes that, that we must come to terms with the universe. We have to come to terms with the situation that we are temporal and shattered the unchristian hopes about human culture being able to save us. We can't build the permanent city that we want to in order to save ourselves. But if we're able to humbly offer our learning to God, we should continue to do so. So I like this sermon. I think it's excellent and obviously quite timely. Um, but yeah, what are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, I enjoyed this sermon quite a bit. Certainly a cut above, you know, what one hears most of the time from the pulpit. But I had several, you know, fun quotes to bring up, but Sam went ahead and just did all of them. So I guess the... Uh, the only thing that I'll say to add on is that I really do appreciate his sort of, I don't know, sort of, it's not fatalism, but sort of a tragic or realistic sense of the limits of humanity in regards to vocation, which is just that, you know, if you happen to find your yourself here at Oxford or Cambridge, you know, to his audience, if you happen to find yourself in a space where you know, you are in the intellectual arts where your path has led you here. Consider that this, you know, despite 
being at being unable to see you know what grand task it is that you'll be uncovering that that is perhaps your humble uh thing to undertake to do it diligently and for god in to the best of your ability and that is your task and you won't necessarily see the result and that other people might take your work forward in the future i i i just very much enjoy that view that's more often i think applied to um i don't know sort of you know it's more stereotypically applied to maybe like peasants or whatever but also just that it might apply in sort of a weird perverse way to a modern economy with people with you know incredibly specialized tasks um that they you know don't necessarily have a way of entirely choosing or entirely predicting but just the possibility that any task in whatever weirdly specialized uh field of possible tasks exists can be something potentially valuable and worth doing as long as you do it in the right manner i don't know it's nice the thing i i really took from the article uh, and i think that is one of the most relevant kind of situation with covid uh, his comment on death, uh, that it, it's this great it, kind of one of the one of the approaches that kind of ever, a lot of people take to death is just ignore it, kind of forget about it, try to try to shove it away and and forget about it. And the function that a war or a pandemic does, I mean, certainly it increases the frequency of death, but it also I mean, Lewis is right. One hundred percent of us are going to die. And there is something very edifying about the fact that we can't avoid it now. Uh, we can't avoid looking at that. Um, well, uh, I, I started reading The Plague uh, by Camus, and The Plague functions in this city. One of the big functions that Camus kind of sets up, the, up with it is people try to ignore it as much as possible, but eventually it becomes unignorable, and all of a sudden people are confronted with death. They have to face it. They don't have a choice in it. You have Walker Percy, who uses... Um, disaster, war, rumor of war, as this indicator that kind of when people view this, when people become aware of their own mortality and, and their death, they see the world anew. They become aware of all the things that they had kind of forgotten, even the mundane things like the tree by, uh, you know, the store that they were walking by when they heard about a presidential assassination or the fact that they kind of are finally able to love their spouse after years of a loveless marriage when a storm uh, approached because all of a sudden death puts everything back into perspective. And I, I think that's something that is maybe not the primary point of this article, but something that I really took away and I think is uh, an edifying uh, approach to uh, very tragic events like these is to at least use it as an opportunity to reflect on our own mortality. No, it's all good. I was, it, was, it was just so good. I was thinking about what to say there. Um, no, it's, it's, I think it's about finding the balance there. And I mean, McIntyre probably talked about this, um, but it's like modern society is totally opposed to finding the balance where, you know, we, we, we try to entirely shove down death and forget about it. Um, but that only makes our life itself less worth leading. And so kind of Lewis is saying we can have, I'm not sure if it's going to make any sense, but we'll try it. Um, we can have the best of both worlds by both recognizing death, recognizing our temporalist, recognizing the fact that we don't necessarily control what happens next. And in the, in his situation, you could get drafted. In this, sex, this situation, we could get a nasty case of COVID. But regardless of that, you know, look that in the face, accept it, but then move on doing doing what you can for the glory of God. And that's 
I don't know. I guess that seems like all there is to living almost. I mean, if that's, if I could, if I could say it that, that boldly or say it that, I'm not saying that's the key to life or anything, but I think that's a large part of it. Well, I think you're right. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, the people throughout all of time have practiced the art of remembering one's own death and remembering one's own mortality. There does seem to be this very oddly enough, life-giving, uh, a, a or a life-giving effect that comes with remembering that you're you're going to die. All of a sudden, the terror of death when it does pop up like this, it it's somewhat had its fangs removed, and I think that is certainly a good thing to be aware that it is going to happen. But then to go about your life and uh, try to live it as best as you can. Yeah, and like our the culture that we're living in right now, I'm not going to say this is the first that I'm not an anthropologist, but it seems like it is very unique in the human experience to be living in a culture where we don't have a built-in way of continually remembering our own death. Hmm. There's something troubling about that notion, the fact that kind of most of our structures, in fact, seem to be designed to do the exact opposite, to forget about our death rather than remember it. Exactly. I mean, and that was something that he he kind of alludes to, but I mean, when I think about like culture, like the, the most prominent area of death is in like remembering wars, remembering mm-hmm. veterans that are lost in in wars. I mean, that's that's an important thing. We should continue to do that. Mm-hmm. But that's more an expression of love of nation, which is is a good thing as well. But it's more an expression of love of nation than an expression of remember your own death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So like, I I mean, I think those are great points. But like every time I'm at anyone's house and I like see any mainstream media news cable channels like i i just really want to die so like i feel like <laughs> the reminders are there if you look for them um but uh this point, just watch fox news or cnn and you will be very aware of man's mortality uh but speaking of man's mortality uh steven i believe you have a great rant for us you know i was actually talking with sam before the show and we were both kind of we're protesting yeah, like we, I'm not sure if I really do have one. I've got like a one, but it's not even like cheery or it's not like happy or sad. It's just like walks are cool, you know? That That's one thing that I've been doing a lot of is going on lots of walks. All right. That's, and uh, Sam, all how about, <laughs> all right, uh, Sam, how about your rant? I've been doing that as well. I've been walking. There's, um, there's some 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 very rarely used railroad tracks near my parents' house where I'm where I'm staying at the moment, and I've enjoyed walking down those with our dog, and that's that's about the most exciting thing that's happened in the last. What about you, Brevin? You got a rant? Please tell me it's about walking. Cthulhu Almighty, those are that was boring. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, okay. So for my rant, uh, mine is that well, it's a happy rant, but I'm gonna make it angry. <clears throat> Uh, crochet, uh, crochet is underrated. A croquet. God damn it! I can't even. Okay, make fun of I me. I think you mean croquet. I, croquet I think that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, I know. Okay, make fun of me. Do it. Yeah. Oh, oh gladly. So, uh, viewers, uh, before the show, Brevin very unironically said, "I'm not going to mispronounce this. I'm going to. I, I'm going to say croquet. No, wait, crochet." It was a. It was a wonderful. No, I moment. said croquette. I said croquette. Yeah. Oh, croquette. You mispronounced all three. I. I this is yeah. that is embarrassing. So it was Crockett, like like Davy Crockett. Yes. <laughs> well, at least now it's on the record. Okay, croquet is underrated. No, crochet is underrated. Anyway, uh, my wife and I went to visit a uh, uncle and aunt of ours here in the Boston area, Wait and a uh, you visited someone. We did, yes, but they haven't seen anyone, and we've only seen some people, and blah blah blah, whatever. 
Um, oh god, that COVID. Don't worry, I swallowed some sunlight, so I'm fine. Uh, but but anyway, um, he actually knew the rules to the game, uh, including like the rules about extra hits for bumping other players, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I managed to get this just amazing combo where I did like half of the full course in about a turn and also like fully displaced my two closest competitors. And then I just waited at the end to finish people, uh, although I shamefully took way longer than I should have. Uh, it, it really is like not a bad game. Like momentum is a huge part of it. Um, and then he also played with this rule where once you get through, you can either finish and just win or you can finish but not hit the final post in which case you become poison and then you get to go through and try and knock other people out uh which i did i i knocked out my wife and my aunt um unfortunately my uncle managed to finish uh and he also became poison at which case it became a duel back and forth over the yard we were hitting our 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 uh our balls at each other and trying to hit the other person while not setting up the other person in a attempt to hit us back so it's just sort of like you know glass cannon on glass cannon first person to take a hit loses and it was great just going back over this grass sniping at each other i lost i'm bitter uh but twas a good old time and uh it is a good game it is a good game that's also i did think you were talking about like the knitting style so uh that makes me at least a little bit more sympathetic to your mispronunciation play croquette there we go i think i said it wrong yeah i don't think it's that it's croquet yeah, I th- i'm pretty sure it's croquet <laughs> uh anyway Okay. Good score. I've never played it, so I'm. You know what? I'm. 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 I'm freaking done with you people. Uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Stephen. And okay. I don't. Okay. <laughs> See you next time, everyone. This is not an affected struggle, guys. This is real. <laughs> <laughs> poor guy. Poor yeah. buddy. Just insert like the YouTube like pronounce this. Um, yeah. After that. Oh, please do. Okay. Uh, yep. Let me make a note of that. Oh. Croquet. Well, on that note, uh, hello everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm, I'm Ansley. Whoa. Uh, Ansley. Ansley. They say hi. Hey, Ansley. Can I get in the podcast? You got yeah. it. I mean, now sure. he's just introducing himself Yay. to us. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll put that in the outtakes. Okay. All right. <laughs> she's she's very proud of herself. <laughs>